Let's turn our Bibles to the book of Psalms. And let's look up Psalm chapter 100, a very famous, familiar psalm that we're going to be studying together this morning. And before we read, let's uh, pause and have a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that we can come to you this morning and open your word and read it in freedom. And we ask now, Lord, that you would speak to us beyond the, the voice and the words of myself. May it be so, Lord, that we hear from you not only to our minds, but also speaking to our hearts. And may we see Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Imagine that you are a Jew living in a rural town in Israel. And the time for one of the Jewish annual feasts has come, and so you set out to go to the temple to Jerusalem. This is a trip you make uh, three or four times a year, and so you know the drill. You know that the journey is a long journey, but it's, it's worth it to you to go from your house in the country to Jerusalem. So you set out all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and you're ready to go. But then all of a sudden, you remember that this journey is longer than you maybe thought initially. It's a journey of actually a couple of days. And as you're on this journey, you start to lose sight of the destination, of the temple. And you get distracted by the circumstances around you. You feel the sun beating down on your head. The path that you need to take is difficult and steep at times. The animal that you have brought to sacrifice to the Lord is difficult, stubborn, and annoying. And you still press on to Jerusalem. But sometimes, you don't even say it out loud, but sometimes a little voice in your head says, is this even worth it? Why am I doing this three or four times a year? You don't have enough time to really let that thought linger in your mind because you're already too far gone. It makes no sense to go back. So you may as well keep going. And you walk for another couple hours. And at some point, it seems like an eternity has passed. But then you start to see the skyline of Jerusalem emerge by the horizon. And you don't only see the skyline, but you start to hear something. A beautiful sound of people singing. You're too far away to hear the words, but as you get closer and closer you start to hear what they're actually saying through song. And the words of the song, so beautifully sung, touch your heart. And your frustrations melt away. And you remember once again, this is why I came to Jerusalem, to worship God. And the words that you hear are the words of this psalm, Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. 
it is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. As God's people would gather in Jerusalem from their different walks of life and where they lived, they assembled by the temple, the words of this psalm, Psalm 100, would encourage them to lift their eyes up from their circumstances to the Lord. And it's been my prayer that that would be the same for you and for myself this morning. And that as we come in here this morning with the cares of our week, with the struggles that are weighing on our hearts, that this psalm, Psalm 100, would lift our eyes up from our circumstances heavenward to see God and reasons we have to praise the Lord. It's a very famous song, very familiar psalm. It's the only psalm that's titled a psalm for giving thanks. Like I said, it was, it was sung usually around holidays and festive gatherings of God's people. It's a very simple psalm. Uh, I'm almost embarrassed at the simplicity of my outline. I feel like I should come up with something more elaborate, but just very simply, if you look with me, you'll see in verse 1 and 2 and 4 a call to worship. The psalmist is calling God's people to praise him. And then in verse 3 and verse 5, the psalmist gives two reasons why we should praise God. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Very simple. We're going to see how we are called to praise God for his greatness and for his goodness. So let's first look at the call to worship God, to praise him. In verse 1, we see that call, that invitation being made by the psalmist to God's people to praise him. And if you look with me, you'll see that this is not an invitation that is limited in any way. Right? The psalmist says, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. This is not just a psalm for the residents of Jerusalem or for Jews in general. This is a psalm for everyone. Everyone is supposed to get in on this, on praising the Lord. Psalm 100 actually is the grand finale in a series of 10 psalms of praise, Psalm 90 to Psalm 100. And if you just read those psalms one by one, you find that this theme comes up time and time again, this theme of the whole world praising the Lord. Just look with me. I put a couple on the screen. Psalm 96, sing to the Lord all the earth. Psalm 97, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Psalm 98, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praise. Everyone is called to worship the Lord. And the focus of our worship is clear as well. If you just look at the five verses in this psalm, I counted God being mentioned over 15 times. Just, just look with me. Let your eye fall along the verses. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Serve the Lord. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. So the psalmist is doing something very simple. 
He's saying, wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever your zip code is, whatever your occupation may be, whatever your age is, you are called to worship God, to praise the Lord. We praise God in many different ways. We even see in the psalm different words described for how we praise the Lord. But the psalmist specifically focuses on singing. Look with me in verse 1 and 2. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. And then later he says, come into his presence with singing. Maybe you say, well, Caleb, you stand up here most weeks and, and sing. So it's obvious that you, that you draw that out. Maybe you say, I, I don't enjoy singing that much. Maybe what I do is actually not even singing, but making a joyful noise to the Lord. Maybe you say, well, you know, my voice is too high or too low. Can't keep a tune. Or my voice is too loud. I don't think that's a problem at all. I've always tried to go for volume and then being on key. Whatever your personal preference is with singing, right? Some of us are more inclined to it. Some of us less inclined. All of us are commanded to worship the Lord, to praise him with our words and with melody. Sing to the Lord. Everyone is supposed to get in on this. Now, we could um, be taught by Beethoven or Bach on the importance of music and singing. But no one captures the significance of singing better than the 2003 cinematic masterpiece, Elf. <laughs> where Buddy the Elf says, singing is just like talking, except louder and longer, and you move your voice up and down. <laughs> and there you have it. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> no, we all know that singing is important. Singing is a common theme in the entire scriptures. If you just look at what the Bible says about singing in general, you see that the Bible is filled with references to songs and singing. The longest book in the Bible is a book of songs, what we're reading from this morning. We read in Zephaniah that God rejoices over his people with singing. Jesus sang with his disciples on the night when he was betrayed. When Jesus hung on the cross, he quoted words from a song. The New Testament commands us to sing to the Lord and to one another. In heaven, one of the things that we will do, many things we'll do, but one of the things we'll do is sing to the Lord. The singing God commands us, his people, to sing our praises to him. Why would he do that? I think there's many reasons. One of the reasons I think that God commands us to sing to him is because he likes it. You can say true things, but there is nothing like the redeemed gathered together singing words of praise to God from the bottom of their hearts that sounds something like this. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice.
Take joy, my King, in what you hear. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. There is nothing like God's people singing together. You realize singing is a very Christian thing to do? Muslims don't gather together to sing. Hindus don't. Buddhists don't come together and sing their praises to the Lord. Singing is directly linked to Christianity. If you look at the history of missions, wherever the Christianity goes, music follows. I think Christians sing more than any other religion because Christians always have something to sing about. There is always something, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of the difficulties that we experience, always something about God that can warm our hearts and cause us to erupt with singing to him, with praise. And the psalmist gives us two reasons why we can praise God, why we can sing to him. First reason he gives is we praise God because he is great. Read verse 3 with me. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. That first word is so striking. Know that the Lord is God. The psalmist does not ask call God's people to praise him because of what they see. There are times that you look in your life and see the blessings of God, but there are also times that it's a struggle. When there's difficulties going on in our lives and we wonder what is going on. We struggle to even see the blessings that God has given us so richly. And so the psalmist says, what do you know to be true about God? Think about in your mind the character and the the works of God and find something singable in that. Don't be discouraged by what you see, but be filled with thanksgiving about what you know. Alistair Begg says it so well. Praising God is not the overflow of our experience, but the expression of our faith. We don't praise God because of what we experience. We praise God because of what we know to be true. And that's what the psalmist says. You know that God is great. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. The psalmist says, think about who made you. Think about your creator. And praise him for making you. David does this elsewhere in the psalm. Psalm 139. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. Because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. It's such a blessing to not be the the product of some coincidental mixture of atoms coming together, but to be made by God. That he is our creator, the one who forms us, who knows us. 
And because he made us, he's worthy of our praise. That's why the psalmist in verse 1 can say, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Why does all the earth need to worship God? Because he made it all. He's the creator of it all. And so everything must give him the honor that is due his name. He is the maker. We are not. He does not need us. We need him. We are creatures dependent. And so we praise him for his greatness. If you did pottery in elementary school, unless you are very talented, there's a good chance that your artwork is not featured in your house today. One of those things that even your mother, when you bring your artwork home from school, says, wow, let me find a place for that. And you never see it again. God is the potter. And the potter never discards his work. God made us. We are broken, chipped, fragile, misfits. And God, as the potter, never looks at his creation and says, I'm done. Into the garbage can you go. You belong to him. He will never discard you and move on to a different project that has more potential. He is committed to you. You are his. And the work that he is doing in your life is a work that will last a lifetime. And so if you see things in your life that are not how they are supposed to be, that is proof that the potter is not done yet, that he still has work to do, that he will finish the work that he has begun, and one day he will display you and I as his masterpiece. He will never cast you by the side and be done with you. Isaiah 49 says it this way. Can a woman forget her nursing child or lack compassion for the child of her womb? Even if these forget, yet I will not forget you. Look, I have inscribed you on the palm of my hand. I think this morning of those of us that are here that feel forgotten that say, you know, God, God loves me, God loves everyone, but my life, I've fallen through the cracks. You know, God just has forgotten about me. God is not too great to notice you. God is too great to overlook you. He is your maker. He will finish what he has begun. You can praise him for that. The psalmist is not done yet. He says, God is not only great, God is also good. Verse 5, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. That phrase that the psalmist uses for God's steadfast love is one word in Hebrew. And it speaks about God's covenant Commitment, his loyal love to his people. 
His love that will never, ever, ever be done. Like a deep well that never runs dry. His love will last forever. Again, this is a theme that's circled back to again and again in the book of Psalms. Maybe most famously in Psalm 23. Let's go to it together. Psalms 23. Where David hits similar themes as the psalmist does in Psalm 100, talking about God's everlasting love and faithfulness. We'll start halfway, verse 5. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I love that in verse 6. It says, all the days of my life. All of our lifetime here on earth is covered under the umbrella of the goodness and mercy of God. But it doesn't stop there. Even when time is over into eternity, the love and faithfulness and goodness of the Lord are promised to us. We are his. He's committed to us. He's the shepherd. We're his sheep. That's another similar theme in Psalm 23 and back in Psalm 100, right? Verse 3, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. I don't have to tell you that sheep are so incredibly high-maintenance and stubborn and needy. And it's so comforting that of all the analogies, God repeatedly in the scripture uses that one to describe his relationship with you and with me. That he says, I'm the shepherd. I'm going to guide you. You belong to me. You're mine. I'm your shepherd. What kind of sheep are you? Are you a wandering sheep? Have you come in this morning as a, a wandering sheep? Have you say, I've left the green pastures. I've tried to live my life my own way, under the fence, across the street. It seemed much better over there. And I found out that life without the Lord is actually a quite barren land. But that's how I come in this morning. I know better. Oh, so often I come into church feeling that way, worn down, beaten up. Maybe you're like me, ashamed of the mess we've made of our lives. And God says to us, I'm your shepherd. I'll bring you back. If you go a million different directions, I'm going to come find you. It's impossible to, to read this psalm and not think of Jesus, right? You read this about the, the good shepherd. He is the shepherd and we are his sheep. And our minds go to what Jesus said. I am the good shepherd. What does the good shepherd do? The good shepherd lays his life down. For his sheep. Giving us his all. In commitment to us. Do you realize that there were 99 sheep in the fold? And you and I were that one sheep that went off. Wandered far away. And Jesus came after you. And sought out you. And pursued you. Even though you were far in the wastelands of sin. And when I was there, he came after me. 
This is the story of salvation for all of us. No one's too far gone. Jesus wasn't content just with the 99. He came after you. He gave his life on the cross so that you and I, by believing in him, believing that he took our sins upon himself, that he rose again from the dead three days later, by putting our faith and trust in him, we're folded in to the flock of Christ. He is our shepherd. I love that song we sing here. We sang it last week, um, King of Love. One verse goes, Lost and foolish, oft I strayed, but yet in love he sought me, and on his shoulders gently laid, and home rejoicing brought me. Jesus is the kind of God that leaves the 99 to seek after the one. That's the kind of God he is, faithful. Jesus is seeking after you right now. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, I've never come into the family of God. I've never placed my faith and trust in him. I've been on the margins or far off. Jesus is seeking after you this morning. Jesus wants you to know that he loves you, that you're not too far gone, that he will come and find you and bring you back to him because he loves you so incredibly much. And for those of us who belong to Christ, his steadfast love is not just to bring us into the fold and figure it out on our own. How long is his love for us? Verse 5 again, his steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. God will keep following you and I with his love and his faithfulness until we make it safely home. What the psalmist is doing is saying, these things in your life, the journey of life that you're on that's difficult, is real. But look up. See the Lord who is great and good. Steadfast love and faithfulness for you, always, wherever you are. I've told this story, I'm sure, before. It just made such an impact on me. When we were living in the Netherlands, there was a missionary, and he, uh, if you asked him how he was doing, he said, Vim, how are you? That was his name. He would, he would always do this motion with his hand. He would say, whatever storms are happening in life, there's always an undercurrent of joy. I always find it odd that he did that, but that was just his thing. You know, storms in life, undercurrent of joy. I remember at some point in his life, he had a pretty bad stroke, um, and he ended up in the hospital, and I went to visit him with my dad. Um, so we go into the hospital, go into his room, and my dad knocked on the door, walked in, and he said, Vim, how are you? And the stroke had impacted his ability to speak. But Vim turned to us, and all that he did was this. As if to say, whatever storms are happening in life, there is always, always an undercurrent of joy. Friends, do you know that undercurrent of joy? Do you know the, the steadfast love of a great and a good God who will follow you with his love until you make it home. May that be the focus of our Thanksgiving and our holiday season coming up. 
in all of the, the riffraff that's going on that's meaningful in its own way. May we know that deeper joy that outlasts it all. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray together.